Helping young minds prepare for success as workers, parents, and members of their communities is a critical task to which we all contribute. Few organizations in education and workforce development today take as holistic and detailed approach as Urban Assembly, a New York-based nonprofit that helps equip schools to deliver social-emotional learning to students. Today, David Adams, CEO of Urban Assembly, explains his journey of moral and vocational formation and how it sparked his passion for the social, emotional, and educational success of students. He also describes what makes Urban Assembly unique and effective at helping mitigate some of the challenges plaguing public education in New York and around the country. He also provides insight on what policies and communities have done to improve opportunity and equity across racial, socioeconomic, and other dividing lines. David Adams, thank you so much for joining us on Hardly Working. It's a pleasure being here, Brent. Thanks for having me. Well, this is a a subject matter that is near and dear to my heart. In fact, it was basically the first first thing that I wrote about uh, when I got to AEI. It's something I've thought about for really decades about the connection between um, social emotional capacity and work and life success. It's not just work success. It really has bearing on, um, on all aspects of life. So, um, I'm, I'm really excited to chat with you and hear about your work. Um, and, uh, we can just dive right into it. First thing I just want to hear about is you, you know, how did, where did you come from? How did you get engaged in this? Um, you know, who helped you, uh, find this pathway for your own life? Well, Brent, um, the first thing I got to name is I definitely came from my wonderful parents, uh, Irving and Yelena Adams. Um, and I, you always got to shout out your mom and your dad when you're having a conversation about your path, right? right. Um, but beyond that, I would say that I really am uh, a product of the institutions that really shaped me. Um, and these institutions were value-based institutions, right? So I joined the United States Army uh, Reserve in 2001. I was 17 years old. Um, I was a camp counselor at YMCA Camp uh, Spears, uh, went to church uh, for most of my life. Um, and, and these are institutions, along with my family, along with school, um, as well as being a musician, uh, that really helped shape my identity in terms of who I am. And, and one of the reasons why that that happened, I would say, is that um, there are a lot of problem sets and, and challenges um, that we face in, in life. And I think when you're really attached to deep institutions, you don't always have to solve those problems for yourself in real time, right? Like I like to say about history um, that uh, everybody's had the same problems in history, uh, but solutions change all the time to those problems. And so um, when you're attached to places like the military or or YMCA camp or church um, or music, uh, these places helped me and helped me to solve problems that I didn't know that I had by kind of sitting in the tradition of those who came before me and using that tradition to help me uh, achieve the spaces that I am. So Rutgers University, um, Yale so University. Let me, let me interrupt for just a second, though, because I've never heard music described as an institution. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me tell me what you mean uh, by that. Yeah, I mean, so when you're playing music, uh, you are working with other people uh, to blend your idea with their idea so that your audience feels one kind of 
coherent notion, message, right? If, if, you, if you play the drums too loud, uh, then all people hear is the drums. If, if, you, if your keyboard's too much, you know, all they hear is the keyboard. If the trumpets are popping, um, then, then people don't hear the violins. And so a lot of music in, in choral music and in, in orchestral, as well as in bands, the goal is to be individually great and to have your individual greatness blend in a group. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's 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 been reinforced as, as well as in the military. It's been reinforced to me in terms of my life is be great, like achieve great things. Know your part. Go out there and play your part well um, and know how your part fits into the whole so that people don't experience just one piece of music. They, they experience the band or the orchestra or the group or the jazz. And so oh, is there a sense then that um, in your view that. Uh, individual greatness is actually tied to the success of others. Without a uh, doubt. Yeah. Yeah, without a doubt. I think Jackie Robinson said that uh, a life is only worthy based on the impact it has on others, right? Um, the worth of one's life can be measured through the impact it has on others. And so um, going out there and, and doing great things for yourself uh, it doesn't have the same resonance in society and history as going out there and doing great things on behalf of your community, on behalf of your family, on behalf of something larger than yourself. And so, um, yeah. And, and, and the idea that uh, I always tell people like the, the paradox that we live in is that individuals are of supreme value in our, in our kind of Western thought about the human person. Sure. In order to achieve that value, the paradox is that they require other persons in order to get there. You know, it's not a, uh, the idea of the rugged individual is actually more myth than reality. Uh, And in fact, um, to thrive, you have to have others. Um, And and in order to develop your your own gifts and abilities. I mean, I think you said this really well, Brent. Um, The failure of communism as an economic system was that it didn't really speak to human tendencies, right? Humans need to want to do things on their own behalf. Um, and so as we organize systems of society and systems of economic development and systems of social emotional development, we're always trying to balance this. I want to do things for myself and the interdependence of how myself works through the large society. And that's when we talk about the common good. How do you solve problems through the common good? And how do we reinforce folks who solve problems through the common good? Because you can, and we can, solve problems for ourselves um, to the detriment of the rest of society or the rest of our community. And part of the the whole experiment of the American system and and self-governance is thinking about ways to balance those things in ways that we all rise together. But but also giving people individual incentive to to try and and thrive and do their best. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's great. Uh, So we were about to get into Rutgers just before I interrupted you. So tell me about Rutgers. Just a little bit of my background. So a Rutgers graduate, um, studied under Dr. Maurice Elias there, where he introduced me to the concept of social and emotional learning. Um, And I'd always been interested in understanding some of the uh, we we used to call non-cognitive aspects to academic achievement, um, but now we understand the relationship of the cognitive and the social emotional. Um, from there, I uh, studied at Fordham University, did some work around educational psychology. Um, from there, I went to Yale University, uh, worked at a lab and went to England for a year and did work around implementation uh, and implementation supports. Came back to New York City, 
I worked in special education for five years, uh, working with students classified as emotional behavior disordered and autism, focusing on the social emotional development. Came over here to the Urban Assembly, director of SEL for about seven years, um, and then I've been CEO here for about two years. It's terrific. Um, well, it's very, uh, I mean, it's fantastically, what you just described is a fantastically rich life course. Uh, for somebody of your tender years, if you don't mind my saying, and that in itself is such a uh, such an unusual is such an unusual thing to find someone of your age so passionate about this idea of social emotional learning. I mean, what we see is typically is people grow into this, and that it, it finally clicks at about thirty five forty that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, paying attention to these things um, is super important to individual well-being, to the community, uh, and um, so that, that, that that's really uh, that's really fascinating. I, I've got some questions for you. Let's do later it. about uh, policy implications on this, but let's not go there quite yet. Let's um, first of all, let's just establish the definition. What are we talking about when we talk about social emotional learning? Great. So uh, social emotional learning is really a set of skills that allow people to interact with themselves, um, interact with the world, and thrive across conditions successfully, right? So um, there's a lot of concepts out there around self-management and self-awareness and uh, relationship skills. But essentially, uh, the, the example that I like to give uh, is that if you were a single-celled organism like an amoeba, you would need to be able to detect states within yourself, right? Like, am I hungry? Am I in danger? Um, and that's problem sets within themselves. And then you need to detect problem sets out in the world. Uh, is it cold? Is it is it warm? And that's the interpersonal skills. And then essentially, you take your interpersonal and you take your intrapersonal skills, and then you use them to solve problems um, and thrive, right? And that's how we come to that definition of interpersonal, intrapersonal sets of skills that allow us to solve problems and thrive across environments. What did you mean, or what do you mean by uh, people learning how to relate to themselves? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so we have uh, emotions, um, we have tendencies, we have thinking patterns, um, and we have these trends that either help us be successful and solve problems or constrain our problem solving, right? Um, and so when you are skilled at understanding uh, simple things like, oh, I, I notice that when I get frustrated, I start to kind of tap my, my leg. That's information. And that mm -hmm. information gives me the ability to better solve the problem of, well, how do I want to show up in this meeting? Um, and so problems within ourselves are things like mood regulation. How do I regulate my mood in order to be successful? Uh, problems within ourselves are like goal-directed behavior. How do I set goals and focus on tasks despite instructions or distractions, I should say? Um, problems are in ourselves are the intensity of emotions. How do we upregulate or downregulate those emotions? Mm -hmm. And so everything that happens uh, is going to happen. But the question is, do I have a set of skills that give me the ability to uh, refine how I'm interacting with myself because I want to solve a problem. And when I say solve a problem, I mean the difference between where I'm at and where I want to be, right? Where I'm at, current state, where I want to be, the end state, anything in between that is a problem. 
And so my intrapersonal skills allow me to work with myself in a way that allows me to move to an end state in the most successful way possible. Have you spent any time reading um, uh, Adam Smith, The Theory of Moral Sentiments? Yes. Yes, actually, I have. Tell me what you think. Well, I mean, Adam Smith, right, uh, is going to be talking about this notion of what kinds of people and what kinds of feelings um, are helpful for society, right? Um, I think the quote that he has from him is, is not why we have wealth, but why not everybody is poor, right? Mm. So the character of people matters and how we as a society organize the character of people matters. Um, and to the extent that social emotional skills help us come to a consensus to a certain extent of what kinds of characters allow us to pursue the common good, I think those are skills worth developing. How'd yeah. I do? Pretty good. I mean, I, he, uh, you know, he talks, uh, I, I'm still kind of uh, probing on this question, uh, probing you on this question of sort of the, what you describe as the man within the breast uh, in, in Smithian terms, you know, the idea that we have within ourselves a another personality that is kind of judging us and guiding us in self-regulation uh, as the terminology we would use now. We want to be loved by others, but we also want to be worthy of that love. We want to be lovely. Um, and so there's this dynamic in social emotional development that Smith described without the benefit of a lot of the science that we have now, but that he described in terms of, uh, it's a it's a volley and return um, pattern where we gradually take on board the self-awareness and this desire to fit um, with other people, in, the, the other people around us so that, again, we can thrive and they can thrive. Um, and um, so anyway, I just I was probing that because I think it's it's remarkable to me that a man, uh, you know, born almost his 300 birthdays this week or this year, I should say. Uh, and 300 years ago, he already understood um, this process of social emotional development. Well, let me let me one up you on that, if I could, Brent. Uh, yeah. So uh, I'm a biblical man myself. Right. And, and when you when you're reading the Old Testament, um, most of the time, folks are described by their character, not necessarily their intelligence. So uh, the prodigal son, right, the capricious one, the saver, uh, the uh, the gluttonous one, right? Um, so, I mean, Adam Smith is picking up on a really important concept, uh, but also I think thought systems and wisdom traditions across ages have really focused on this question of who people are as a really important parcel of mm. how they mm. show up in society. Right. Um, and yeah. I think picking up on those same ideas that uh, who people are matter. And to, to the extent that there are skills that we could develop yeah. that allow us to be more successful and yeah. being the people we want to be, I think we should teach yeah. those. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I think that Smith gives, gives a language for a, a sort of uh, non-religious explanation. Right. He wasn't a little unclear as to what his religious commitments were, uh, but he gives a language for describing this in non-religious terms. Personally, I it's the uh, epistemological basis of this is 
much more secure if you're thinking about human beings as designed rather than strictly evolved. Um, that there is a that we are these capacities, uh, while they have to be developed, are are imprinted uh, yeah. on us um, in the from the very beginning. It's a question of whether we develop them well or we develop them poorly. Um, and uh, the consequences for developing them poorly are kind of all around us. I think if we're thinking about this question of of imprinting and the religiosity, i would I would offer that the stories in particularly the Old Testament, while they have some uh, biblical kind of intervention, um, the, the intervention is not really the driving point of this story. A lot of times the driving point of this story is how do people relate to each other? And what are the characteristics that are worthy of, of elevation as they relate to each other? And, and now you have the, you know, some biblical kind of space for some extra space in terms of uh, uh, how the story turns. But, but the core of the story is people. Yeah. Um, and how people solve problems. And they're the same problems. That's why we talked about this notion of tradition, right? You would think thousands and thousands of years ago, folks were dealing with all sorts of weird problem sets, but it's pretty much adultery and passion and murder and uh, jealousy. <laughs> and it's not, yeah. you would think we're, we're, we're a lot more evolved, but we're just answering the problems in different ways uh, now that they, than they did. So I, I think there is a, there is a line of thinkers that, that, that start from the old Testament to folks like Adam Smith, uh, to folks like Foray and 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 Young and and who are trying to understand people, right? And how we relate right. to ourselves. That's great. Um, okay, so tell us a little bit about the Urban Assembly. What is it? Uh, where did it come from? Uh, what's its mission? Well, uh, the Urban Assembly is an educational nonprofit, and our job is to advance the social and economic mobility of communities. Um, and we do that through the design of our high-impact public schools. So we have 23 schools that we support and that we designed here in New York City, but also by offering learning solutions to school districts across the country. So um, our work that starts in the urban assembly scales to places all across the country and the world. Uh, about 1,600 schools here in New York use some of our learning solutions. But we also have uh, schools in Boston and Tennessee and Virginia also using our learning solutions around the improvement of public education. So... You pointed out to us just as we were getting ready to come on here uh, to, to have this conversation that um, President Biden has um, uh, last year recognized social emotional learning week or was it day? I can't remember. Anyway, a social emotional there was but a, a a sort of the way the president can focus attention on a particular issue. Um, what's his interest in this? Well, I would never want to speak for uh, the president, um, but I can tell you in the letter, uh, he was very proud of uh, the funding around public education, particularly for social and emotional learning coming out of the pandemic. Um, we saw a lot of children struggling to really integrate back into uh, society um, and really to demonstrate the kind of social skills that they had before the pandemic. Um, and so uh, much of the ESFER funding and the American Recovery Act um, included funding for schools to really dedicate themselves to developing the social emotional skills of young people. Um, and so we were very proud to be recognized as a movement that was bringing folks from across, not just the country, but the world together to understand the role social emotional skill deployment, uh, the role, role social emotional skill development plays 
um, and, and creating a, a society that is just and that pursues the common good. So that's happening again this year, you said? Certainly, we have Social Emotional Learning Day uh, happening on March 10th, 2023. So you can get on scldayorg and you can sign up to promote and showcase and develop your own social emotional outcomes. Um, and we are hoping uh, that the president will once again recognize the importance of this day for the nation. That's terrific. Uh, I, I I really think it is ex you know, extremely important. I'm glad to know that. Um, I, I mean, I I picked up on this in a, a number of initiatives that the administration has been talking about, and it's good to know that um, this is being, um, you know, as a as a complement to other strategies. I think it's it's really important. Um, so let's talk about. Um, you know, sort of social emotional learning, but try to get as specific uh, as we can. So you have 20 schools that you're collaborating with. Um, and they uh, uh, they have different missions of their own. So they sure. may have a focus on performing arts, emergency management, law, commerce. Um, does the, uh, do the concepts that you use shift between or or, or um, they evolve, I guess, uh, depending on the specific content of what's being taught. That's a great question, Brent. I mean, um, so we identify uh, social emotional competencies, things like self management, relationship skills, um, and and we know that there's a lot of good research that shows that the development of these competencies are important across uh, workforce development opportunities. They're important across. Uh, life skills, things like 20 years down the line, uh, we see young people who have had these opportunities to explicitly develop these skills, um, more likely to be in engaged relationships, more likely to be, or less likely to be uh, risky sexual behavior, uh, less likely to be on public housing, more likely um, to have fulfilling careers. And so uh, we don't necessarily uh, differentiate what skills are needed for what school, but we we can certainly think about, for example, our Urban Assembly School for Collaborative Healthcare. Um, we certainly recognize the relationship between relationship skills and uh, the ability to be effective in healthcare. I, I don't know, I, I gotta have to fact check this one, but I, I recall there was a study that said that the best predictor for malpractice lawsuits for doctors was bedside care, right? Do, do patients feel trusted or do patients trust their doctor? Um, and so these are the kinds of ways that we think about the relationship between social emotional skill development and a career that's either focusing on team building, uh, focusing on patient services, or focusing on something like emergency management. So I want to just go one, uh, one step further on this workforce development topic. Um, as you may have seen in some of the things that I've written, I mean, I really, I, I really describe the future of workforce development is kind of a double helix yeah. um, between technical skills, which are essential for uh, job competencies, and then um, what we call, because we're in an institution that focuses on economics a lot of the time, uh, what we call non-cognitive skills. They're also social-emotional skills. They're also, they go by about a dozen different names, but it, it it has this idea that the ability to relate well to other people yeah. um, is is critical, and this double helix operates in a way where these things are mutually reinforcing. Yeah. Um, 
uh, social emotional skills are critical to kind of learning capacity, right? Yeah. Uh, if you can't, um, if you can't relate well to others, you are not going to be as effective um, in being able to learn new skills, adapt, change, and so on. And then to take this one step further, those and you may be familiar with this, but sectoral training strategies. Mm-hmm with like uh, programs like Perscolis and Work Advance and um, a number of other training kinds of programs, one of their core strategies is the integration of technical skill training with professionals, what they call professional skill training, which is really this whole world, this whole domain. Um, How much time do you spend and you're thinking about this in terms of the role that these skills play in uh, economic well-being and advancement. Well, it's a great question, Brent. In the Army, we talk about education as human capital development, right? So um, civil affairs officer, um, the educational specialist, um, and we talk about the relationship between human capital and education. Um, and in Steven Pinker's book, he talks about enlightenment now. Um, it's not just education as human capital development in terms of folks' ability to problem solve technical skills. Um, education as a component to societal development shifts the way people are as an independent variable, right? It's not just I know how to do things. I I, I am different as I am educated. Um, and the role that social emotional skills play in what it means to be educated matters, right? And and you mentioned this in a very straightforward way, right? My ability to have flexible problem solving and thinking, and this is is actually when you look at the math performance standards and and the old common core standards and the way they organized it, um, the ability to persist on a problem, but also shift problem solving strategies when one problem or solution set's not working, right? Again, intrapersonal skills. You are monitoring your own level of frustration, your own level of of, um, investment in a problem, and then being able to shift across those problems as uh, you're identifying it's not working. And and I I don't know if this ever happened to you, Brent, but like I've I've written a paper, something has happened, and I've lost the paper, and I have to make a decision, right? Am I going to like sit and pout about this paper and like spend three hours trying to recover it with like BitLocker and things, or am I just going to rewrite it? Um, and the three hours that I spent making that decision matters because I only have four hours to write the paper, right? Mm-hmm. So the the kind of flexibility that young people are need to bring to this new economy, right? Where it's not a 20-year, 30-year job set. Uh, it is upskilling, reskilling, taking in and abstracting skills across different problem sets and domains of thinking, mm-hmm. right? Those things are going to be contingent, not just on do you know a thing, but how can you apply what you know to problems that you may not be familiar with, right? Um, and as you mentioned, how do you work in a team to create new solutions? The creativity is not an individual pursuit, right? It, it comes from different kinds of people and different kinds of ideas and different ways of thinking coming onto a consistent problem set. And in order to get the most out of diversity and diverse thinking, you really need to know and understand how to work with people and work with different kinds of people. Um, And again, the best teams are the most diverse teams 
and the most diverse teams who can work together, right? Because it doesn't work if you're diverse and you're all kind of at each other's throats uh, trying to say, this is my point, this is your point, I want to do what I want to do. It works when you take the difference of people and difference of thinking and can cohere that into a new solution that that wouldn't have come from one perspective or one problem solving. So I think SCL skills, if you look at the OECD and their emphasis on social emotional development um, and their really elevation of that in places like Singapore, places like Japan, um, places like Switzerland, they're really recognizing that the new future of education is not going to be informational based. Uh, it's going to be knowledge based and knowledge, uh, assuming that we're taking that information analyzing it, turning into something useful, and then working in teams to solve problems to move forward. It's really interesting uh, that you, those three countries you just mentioned, uh, Singapore, Japan, and Switzerland, because those are not countries that we associate with the idea of social flexibility, actually. You know, they are among Singapore is the, is the big, you know, the, the preeminent example of this, but that's a very rigid hierarchical uh, society that is very big on social control, um, you know. Um, so it's interesting that they, and, you know, of course, Japan is quite insular. It's not an open society and roles are, you know, have traditionally been pretty strictly defined. The Swiss are hilarious uh, in the way that they, um, you know, they need order uh, around them um, to, to, you know, in many cases. Uh, so uh, what's, that's a really strange connection. Why would these societies that are remarkably rigid, uh, examples of rigidity in thinking yeah. or, uh, or social relationships be investing in us? Well, again, I don't want to speak for our other folks. Um, I can certainly tell you that we had a visit from uh, um, from folks from Singapore to, to Urban Assembly maybe three months ago, looking at the work we're do, doing around social emotional learning. Um, I, I would I would argue that folks are recognizing um, that mm -hmm. there are limits um, to homogeneity, homogeneity, homogeneity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and moving forward in society. I mean, I think we would both recognize that Japan has been really struggling to get out of an economic malaise for a good amount of time. Um, tried immigration, kind of worked, didn't work, right? Um, uh, Singapore has invested deeply into our educational system and see social-emotional skill development as an economic advantage in terms of being able to work in groups and solve problems. They're very connected to Western ideas. Singapore, yeah. I would argue, sees themselves as a bridge between Eastern and Western concepts. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, I think American competitive advantage has always been our ability to take in different kinds of thinking um, and, and produce innovation from that. Um, and I think when countries are looking at innovation, they are looking at, well, how do we create an education system uh, that supports innovation? Mm. And there's that mm. balance between cohesion and innovation, as you would know. Um, but I think they are, again, not to speak for them, but I think they are interested in understanding the relationship between flexible problem solving, uh, working together in groups uh, across difference. Because I think, you know, for a long time, there has been, if you think about the 80s, there is this kind of like, okay, the solution is not having to deal with difference. The solution is having a coherent, consistent society who works really, really hard, who doesn't really question big ideas, right? 
Um, but those are societies that will not continue to have economic advantage when you look at the kind of innovation that's coming out of the United States. Um, when you look at what China has been doing, for example, uh, they tend to want to copy the innovation coming out of the United States rather than develop it at its own, because it's very difficult to control people politically and then expect them to innovate economically. So let's uh, let's press into that point a little bit. I mean, I uh, my my theory of social problems uh, uh, is that whatever whatever's happening at the top of a, of a society. Um, will that in a negative sense um will find itself uh expressed in its most extreme form among uh low-income communities mm -hmm. within that society so whatever whatever you're wrestling with um as a society you're going to find it most sort of most stark uh at uh, among uh, communities, uh, low low socioeconomic status communities. Mm -hmm. um, and you've spent uh, quite a bit of time thinking about the particular challenges faced by Black boys um, in this area of social emotional learning. What, talk about that. What do you, what do you see? What are the particular challenges that you see among uh, among uh, black boys, black families, uh, low social, low socioeconomic status communities. Yeah, I mean it's a great question. Um, I think when when we're looking at the state of men in uh, America in 2023, um, we should be concerned. Uh, and I'm going to speak broadly, and then I'm going to bring it down to the African American community in terms of black boys. Um, we see men are dropping out of the labor force at higher rates, uh, not participating in the labor force at higher rates. Um, we see among uh, white men called death of despair, right? Um, increasing uh, white male mortality, um, everything from alcohol to overdose. Uh, the, the expectancy has gone down for, uh, life expectancy has gone down for that group. Um, and so these, I think your, your theory is that things get concentrated in lower economic spaces. I would argue that um, we can predict what's going to happen in American society by looking at the Black community. Um, and when, when you looked at, and you look at the Black community, particularly the male Black community, um, what you saw was deindustrialization um, in many of these areas, uh, like Gary, Indiana, that, that was really focusing on the employment of Black males. Um, and so as this deindustrialization happens, right, uh, the, the marriageability of Black males goes down. Um, and as marriageability of Black males goes down, uh, there are more families that don't have Black men in them. There's a lot of good research that males in particular are more fragile to family structure than females. Um, when you look at divorce rates and you look at the impact of divorce from males to uh, females, you can see that males tend to have more externalizing reactions to that, right? Um, and it really does impact on the social emotional development. So uh, as this DSD industrialization happens, uh, the, the work that, that, that black men were doing um, went away. And again, as a, as a way to predict what's happening, the ability to reskill for black men for conditions of racism, but also just for conditions of the ability to go back and get a new skill were lower um, or less utilized. So, Right now, what we are seeing um, is that we're seeing a situation where the conditions for 
the development of uh, boys are, are less than optimal. Um, and those conditions range across a number of pieces. They, they come from family structure. Um, we know, again, the research would demonstrate that, um, that, that boys in particular do better with two loving parents uh, and supportive parents in, in a home. Um, and, and that really does impact on their social and emotional development. Uh, so the, the percentage of single parent households is a good predictor for academic achievement as well as social emotional challenges. Um, and then we know that we have a system that's targeting black men in a different way than it's targeting other folks in terms of things like criminal behavior um, and, and, and crim criminal uh, act activity in general, right? Um, and so we put these things together, uh, we are seeing uh, a society um, or community, I should say, um, that's really struggling to raise men and to develop men in a way that can be productive citizens and productive contributors to society. Um, and so we need to think about, uh, again, because now we're seeing these patterns across different spaces, right? So if you look at a hillbilly elegy, uh, you're going you're gonna to read about families who are struggling, men without jobs, men who are not interested in jobs, right? Um, and now the policy response is different because the population is different. When it was deindustrialization, de I think in the black community, the question was, uh, why aren't these men working? As, as it moves to different uh, parts of our society in the white community, the question is, uh, why is NAFTA taking away jobs from places in Ohio? Mm -hmm. um, but at the end of the day, uh, we will need to figure out um, how to create the conditions for men to be successful. And, and when we do that for our Black boys, um, they will be successful for the rest of our society as well, because um, when we are not successful, um, we, see, we see the kind of violence, uh, we see the kind of disintegration of social systems um, that lead to challenges across communities. Uh, There's a research study that said the best predictor of violence in communities is the number of unemployed men. Um, and, and that's a problem. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I think it's 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 both a structural thing in terms of how we're thinking about uh, things like social safety nets, upskilling and reskilling, um, and a structural thing in terms of how our families are structured and how that impacts Black boys. And our response needs to be both structural and educational insofar as how do we ensure that uh, our Black boys are developing with the kind of social and emotional skills that they need to be successful. Um, and also, how are we giving them the skills to contribute something to society so that they have the skills that they need to be successful? Yeah, I mean, I've I've written a fair amount on this as well. I just, uh, you know, looking back at the, the Gary, Indiana example that you used and what uh, William Julius Wilson wrote about, you yep. know, which was, look, they didn't stop working they, or they didn't leave jobs. The jobs left them, you know, talking about black men uh, yeah. and dropping out of the workforce. And that was, you know, uh, many on the on the right said, no, no, no. This is really a culture question. You know, yeah. like uh, it's a lack of there's something wrong in in uh, black culture that has uh, led to a, a basically a collapse in work morale. Um, you know, the value of work declined, and that's really the explanation. When when automation, I would say it's more automation than trade, but when automation came for uh, jobs that were held by uh, what we call working class whites, although they don't actually work very much, um, uh, the, the, especially the men who have withdrawn from the workforce, um, 
that whole argument flipped on its head. All of a sudden it was, oh, well, it's totally understandable that uh, these men aren't working because of course there are no jobs. Um, and SSI, uh, right? Uh, the social security dependence. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, it's interesting you say that, Brett, and I appreciate it because I think racism is a pernicious kind of thing that's sometimes really hard to kind of hold and right. it has it's a shapeshifter and it and it and it pops out in weird ways and expresses itself um you know this is can, a good example it can, it can flip overnight you know yeah uh, so yeah but the policy conversation just as you said right um and and the other thing i think and william julius wilson talks about this is it becomes like cyclical so it's, it becomes hard to locate what what started the situation right was it the jobs was it the culture was but i think we have some good evidence that it was the jobs but as yeah. the jobs leave your culture yeah. kind of no, it, yeah culture uh, culture and structure work together i mean it, and i think it's a fool's errand trying to say well it's mainly one thing or mainly the other i think it's both and they're and they are working together in a kind of mutually negative reinforcing um in reinforcing way i do think that it's easy to unlearn the habits of work, mm. right? If that isn't around you all the time, with everybody that you know, employed, working every day, uh, in school, getting married, all of these things that lead to the good life of, you know, stability and economic advancement and, you know, well-being, social well-being, you're not seeing that around you. Uh, I don't think it's really possible to sustain uh, on your own. Um, and so, it's, again, it's this, what's the connection between individual behavior and the, the embeddedness of the person in the community? Um, you can't, it's idiotic, I think, to try to pull those things apart. And so we need to, we need to focus on both. I 100% agree. Um, and I think to the extent that we look at policing as a solution, um, as opposed to some of these structural spaces, it is both. Um, it is how do we ensure that our neighborhoods are safe? Uh, because again, unsafe neighborhoods then reinforce versions of masculinity that are not necessarily uh, devoted towards the common good in terms of how we create safe spaces for families and society. So um, all these things play into each other. And if there is a solution, I'd be happy to hear it. But I think we we have a sense a little bit of how that problem came to be um, and how it's manifesting in the Black community. So you said in an interview about the New Teacher Center that schools are central institutions of identity formation. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I... I want to say yes to that, but I also want to ask whether you think we're asking too much of schools um, to be to be doing that because identity uh, isn't isn't it's very difficult to break it down into a you know identity formation is difficult to break down into a curriculum. A, B, uh, it really starts well before people enter schooling. Uh, before they get to pre-K even, um, you know, that, that identity, who am I mm -hmm. and, and how do I connect to the world around me um, is something that, that starts really early. So I'm really, I'm curious, uh, you know, schools should probably be there to reinforce that, but are we asking, of, are we asking too much of them 
um, to to do this level of work? Well, I mean, I think this is, it's a complicated question, right? Um, the question of identity, like other institutions, um, is is such that we are always developing the identity of the the folks in our care. The question is the intentionality of that development and and to what end? What what kind of identity are we trying to develop? Right? Um, I think when when we when we look at schools. Um, and we recognize, like, if you think about the central argument in Brown versus Board, uh, and and Thurgood Marshall comes in with the, the the dolls, and he has the white children and the black children, and says, which which doll is better, right? As a moral statement, which is a better doll? And the black children choose the white doll, right? Um, because the identity development, not just in schools in Jim Crow, but across the the, the country was specifically oriented towards ensuring that that was the outcome, right? Nothing too petty, nothing too small uh, to reinforce the white supremacy yeah. in the case. Um, and, 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 and the same thing when you're looking at apartheid, South Africa, but, but, but also the same thing if you're looking at, for example, in Egypt um, and the, the role that religion plays in schools and, and school, uh, folks who are not the majority of religion, uh, what, what ideas they receive um, in part of that society, right? So schools always play a cultural role in who we are. Uh, in the 1920s, right, schools were the central, really, institution of taking hundreds of thousands of immigrants and developing a, a concept of the American ethos. Uh, some were some better. Uh, if you look at uh, the boarding schools and Native Americans, and I think we look at that now, and and we see this as a a, a cultural um, graveyard. No, a cultural genocide is a way to say it, right? Mm -hmm. Against Native Americans, stripped their language, stripped. Um, at the time, educating Native Americans in in quote unquote white schools was the liberal position, and the conservatives yeah. was wipe them out, right? Um, yeah. So. Oh. If this was kill the savage, save the Indian, the the notion, right, uh, or save the man, right? So, I guess what I'm saying here is that there is no version. And let me just throw one more out here: Reconstruction uh, during uh, right after the Civil War, during during the, the late 1800s. Um, what role were schools playing in developing uh, the? And this was the Union Army coming in and and making a decision of. And I'm going to quote this how to turn uh, formerly enslaved people into citizens and the role that schools would play in uplifting those concepts and those notions. So I guess, Brent, this is a long way of saying uh, schools have always played a part in the notion of identity development in, in countries in the United States and beyond. Uh, our job is to come to an idea and a consensus across our societies is what do we want them to do with that? And I think there, there are legitimate conversations on both sides. Neil Postman would write uh, that he would be skeptical of the role of schools in, in developing specific identities that are connected to ethnic or racial backgrounds and felt like other institutions were better. Other, other schools of thought think that schools should uplift and identify each specific racial and ethnic background um, versus focusing on the whole. So I, look, I, I will only say that schools play a, a role in identity development. And I think the big question that we have today and the big debate out in the in the country is what role should that be? I think it's uh, I think you're dead on. Uh, I, my my concern that I'm 
that lingers in the back of my head is um, what we have here is a family formation problem that we're asking schools to solve. Uh, and that's not um, that's that's not what schools are designed to do. That's not what they're really able to do. Mm. And so um, uh, it it's it's a it can certainly be a reinforcer. Um, I think, but it's it's really hard to supplant um, the role of families. I think in in identity development. Um, yeah. Okay. And I don't. So, and I don't think schools yeah, would want to say that that would be the case. Yeah. Right? yeah. Um, Depends on the school, right? I mean, I, I suppose there are schools that, uh, and we, you know, if you spend any time on conservative media, you'll find lots of you know alarmist um, uh, mm -hmm. and. And extreme examples of schools that go too far on this and and really do, you know, individual teachers or schools that see, you know, that their role as supplanting um, the the family. I don't think that's true in general. I I think that schools really want to cooperate with parents and they really want to, you know. Be integral to communities, and I think that they, in ninety-eight percent of the cases, that's actually correct. But that's what they're doing. Um, so, but we can always find outliers um, where you where you find people kind of taking this aggressive approach. But um, well, yeah. I, I would say to this, Brent, briefly that that schools really reflect the values of communities and societies, and where we see gaps in the discussion of what those values are and how we develop them we're then gonna see conflicts around the approaches to that. And so um, I think, and I know the examples that you've been talking about, I yeah. think like we need to have these conversations. We need to be able to say, I mean, it was a big deal, for example, when the government said that uh, child protection agencies um, had a superseding authority uh, mm -hmm. over the parents themselves to declare or decide the welfare of children. Yeah, I mean, and right. we know why, right? Because like some right. parents are just terrible people and, you know, um, mm -hmm. but it shouldn't be the 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 norm. It shouldn't be the norm no. that the government is trying to remove parents or children from their from their parents. Um, I remember so I remember having a conversation with a child welfare um, senior person, state of Oregon, uh, and we were talking about the conditions under which a child might be removed from a home and she said, you know, we see a lot of families who would not measure up to our standard, she's white, I'm white, so would not measure up to our standards of what a good functional family is. That does not mean that, that ch the child in that family would be better off by taking them out. Um, mm -hmm. uh, removing children from home is, extremely disruptive and and hard on kids it's major um life trauma to go yeah. through that and so we need to be very judicious um uh about that it, but you know safety is still there how do we how do we protect the life of children lives of children who are actually endangered by their home situations and and as we kind of move on from this i would say the one argument that um, that doesn't resonate so much with me, let me take it another way. Education is a societal resource, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Anybody who's raised bonds, any superintendent who's trying to build a new uh, school knows you have to communicate 
to those who do not have children in the education system, why the quality of their education matters, right? You have folks who are grandparents, they haven't had kids in the school system for 30 years. They will also pay taxes um, in order to maintain the school system. And so at the end of the day, we need to have that conversation and say, all right, this is the reason why this matters. And if people disagree, we need to listen to the disagreements. You'll have one side that says the welfare of the child is, is paramount, and this is the way that we think that we're doing it. Another side will say, should the welfare of the child, as you understand it, supersede a parent's authority to raise kids in terms of how I, I believe and, and, and want to raise the kids? And this, this is a conversation worth having, right? Um, and I think yeah, that's what no, we're it is a conversation worth having, and you will hear a lot of conservatives out there saying that they want that for themselves. You know, they don't want to feel like they're at risk of having their authority as parents uh, over overturned um, by the state. And I think that's something we, you know, that should that should be the first box on everybody's list. Is you know, is the is the is the situation significant enough that you would you are going to override you know using state power to coerce people um and that uh and that that should be a consideration for everyone right not just for the economically privileged or you know uh but that everyone deserves that consideration uh and and deference um uh, every family deserves that. So, um, okay, we are we're reaching the end of our time. Um, if people want to learn more about you and your the work that you're doing, where should they go? You should definitely go to urbanassembly.org, uh, where you can learn about the work that we're doing around social emotional learning and development, uh, around algebra success and career connected learning. Um, you can go to David Adams underscore SEL if you want to get me on Twitter. Um, if Twitter is still going to be around, I mean, that's an open yeah. question. <laughs> I have a feeling it is. Yeah, they, they seem to be doing well. Um, and uh, you can certainly email me at dadams at urbanassembly.org uh, if you're interested in our learning solutions um, and, and partnering with the Urban Assembly to help improve public education. Terrific. David Adams, thank you so much for your time. This has been fascinating and uh, really congratulations on this work. I think it's um, it's it's essential, it's critical, and we need as much of it as we can get. Thank you for having me, Brent. Hello, this is Jeff Pickering, Director of Academic Programs here at AEI and host of the Campus Exchange Podcast. I want to take a moment to tell you about AEI's 2023 Summer Honors Program. This annual program is a unique all expenses paid experience for undergraduates to study the pressing issues of our day with AEI scholars and other policy experts. This program will bring a couple hundred undergraduates from campuses across the nation and the world for week-long seminars taught throughout the month of June. Some of the courses we're offering this June will cover the changing nature of warfare taught by AEI's Corey Shockey, Polarization and Pluralism with David French of the New York Times, and the Foundations of Democratic Capitalism with AEI's Michael Strain. In addition to time in the seminars, students will also have opportunities to connect and network with other students, young professionals, and other experts across the political and policy spectrum. If you are a current college student or you know someone who may be interested, head on over to AEI.org or Google AEI Summer Honors to learn more and to apply.
Applications are due March 15th. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.